John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 1277.ez3403, certificate number 35844, the tan suit controversy. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I want to say a few words on a number of topics and take a few questions before the long Labor Day weekend. First, beginning with the number one thing that most Americans care about, the economy. Is this about the tan suit my mom made me when I was like seven and me and my brother hated them and didn't want to wear them? Tell me more about that. That's really not that much more to the story. I feel like I covered the highlights just right there. My mom made them from like a McCall's pattern. She did. Did your mom make your clothes? No, but did sometimes. It seems like a suit would be a thing that would be much harder to make than... Very ambitious, right? Yeah, right. Maybe that was fun Matching for her. suits for you guys? Yeah, little uh, her little seven and five-year-old and matching. Uh, they, were, they were some kind of a tan, kind of a light check of some kind. Mm-hmm. And... How long did they fit? How, how many times did you wear them? I mean, that's the thing about making a suit for a five-year-old, really. Right. I don't remember. I don't think I wore a suit to church every week. This would have been for like family pictures or You something. should just cut out sleeve holes in a in a flower sack and make your kids wear them until they're at least 14. That's what I do. Right. Because the flower sack companies know about this and they make them now to look like those tuxedo t-shirts. <laughs> so you can just put some arms and leg holes wear in them. Wear them to church, wear them to, to <laughs> weddings. Uh, ah, wow. I'm, I, I really, now I want to see a picture of you and your brother in these tan suits. I kind of want to also. I wonder if I can dig one up. Yeah. That should be the show art for the show. If you can find it. I don't know what the controversy is. Uh, do you, how many suits do you have? So you, you've, you appear on television in suits. They tend to be fairly tailored, but, um, you know, like slim cutty suits. How many of those do you own and how did you come about owning them? Uh, I really, most of my suits I now have because they were wardrobe for something. Oh, and then you, you walk out with them? Sometimes because if they fit, if they've tailored them for you, a lot of the times they're like, Hey, do you want to keep the suit? And I'll be like. Sure, that was a nice suit. Do you have to give them 50 bucks or do you just, you just, do you wave your hands around and say, hey, look over there. And then you run out the 
the side door? I'm sure there are ways to abscond with wardrobe. Right. Um, but I've never tested any of them. That's how I have my ermine ro- robes, actually. All my ermine robes came from playing kings. And is there ever an email after the fact? Hey, uh, did you leave the ermine robe in your dressing room? Because we can't find the ermine robe. I actually, the other day, I hate to say this, but I had a pair of glasses that broke and I got it from a, like a mall glasses company uh, that offered a... Uh, like a uh, replacement warranty yeah. for one year. Mindy just got me sunglasses that come with a lifetime of sunglasses. Yeah, or so- and, somehow. And these glasses had truly gotten scratched and broken. I mean, they they were normally I wouldn't you know I wouldn't avail myself of a deal like that, but I had I had messed up these glasses pretty badly, and I got a new pair. And it all happened online. You know, you send in a thing like, and I showed up at the at the store in the mall to get my new glasses. And the person helping me was the person that had originally helped me get the original glasses. And I hated the person. I really, really had a bad experience with them. Did they remember you? No, right? Well, we both had masks on now where we Mm. didn't a year ago. And, um, and as he handed me the glasses, he said, we've got your, you sent in your old glasses, right? this broken pair of glasses. And I was like, oh yeah, totally. And in that moment, he knew that I was lying, but he had already handed me the glasses. It would have been very hard for him to snatch them back. What that means is you didn't, you didn't do it right. I didn't do it right. You're you're too, you're a man of good conscience and you could not say, oh, of course I did. Convincingly. Yeah. He could see the, the hesitation in your eyes. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't feel good about it, but then I was like, oh, this is just one of those perfunctory things where they want me to send it back because they want to make sure I'm not cheating. Yeah. And then they're going to throw it in a, in a crusher. Let's just save ourselves the postage. But your Jesuit upbringing wouldn't quite let you get mm, right there. Yeah. And then I just, I don't know. I just, I moonwalked out. But of you that. were already holding them in a tighter grip than he was. Yeah. Did, did you guys do a little back <laughs> a little and forth? back and forth. I think he saw in my eyes that I didn't like him. And maybe he probably he probably remembered you know that I kind of even snapped at him. I didn't like him so badly. Uh, but but you look good on television, wouldn't you say? Do, do you feel when you? I look better when I'm in a nice suit. When that's you're in for a sure. suit, do you feel it gives you a, f- a confidence? I was, on a, I was on a I was on Anderson Cooper's web show recently, and uh, he showed a clip of. Um, he looks amazing. Oh, he does look good. Yeah. That's not the point of the story. But oh, he, sorry, sorry. But he really does look good. Yeah, those glasses always look good. Yeah handsome man they showed a clip of me uh like on the show after i lost on jeopardy in 2004 alex brought me back up at the beginning of the show just to just to wish me well and kiss me off and you know and i'm just wearing whatever my suit was in 2004 some jc penny's suit or <laughs> men's warehouse or something and i'm there in that this kind of blobby shapeless charcoal suit and i'm like that looks awful right um in comparison the stuff they got me in now that's actually been tailored looks really good but jeopardy doesn't care if the contestants look good did they put you in that suit i mean or was that the suit that you bought to to go to funerals and weddings yeah it was just what yeah it was just you know one of two funerals and wedding suits in my closet or or church some of us go to church Church, church, i'm sorry of course (laughs) the the church it just makes you worse at lying to glasses store cashiers but (laughs) but it it has other upsides church is kind of like going to a wedding and a funeral at the same time every week yeah right in between when you were doing the goat championship with those two other ding-dongs how did you think about dressing to crush their spirits was was it because you're you all looked great but uh but we know the young guy 
uh, Holzhollerhauer. Hollenzollerin. He won't wear a suit. Right. He doesn't wear a suit because it it, it, it slows him down on the slows, button, slows right? his buzzer attack, yeah, he thinks. But so you guys all, you all were dressing in order to, I mean, you knew this was going to be primetime television. Was there any coordination? Did you have any help from wardrobe? Yeah, normally Jeopardy contestants are on their own, and that explains a lot mm-hmm. as to what you see on, Charlie your, Brown t-shirts. on your television. Uh, and recently, I think the show has been trying to casual people up a bit, just so... I think maybe so the show looks a little younger and more fun. You know, some people are not wearing a blazer. They're right. they're wearing uh, some kind of a fleece or a Henley or sweater yeah. of some yeah. kind. All of that it just makes me barf in my mouth. But, you know, it, it, it's true that people either looked like they were in computer maths or they looked like Hillary Clinton in law school. But you never regret dressing up a little on TV. Here, here. You know, it's you're never going to think, boy, I just I looked a little too fancy there. I wish I'd worn a fleece. It's because we just expect to see everybody on TV in a very nice suit, even if it's a total goober, even if it's Jimmy Fallon. Our, our default view of him is in uh, a pretty nice slim cut suit. Right. Um, so the second you see anybody wearing just you know, a perfectly nice button up that would look great at the at uh, an after work get together at the local watering hole. You see that on TV, and you're like, "Who is this homeless person?" Well, and that's never more true than the way we look at presidents of the United States, right? They're the right. ultimate like suit exemplar, um, and you don't even realize it, but you you know, it's just it's just weird when they're not right, right, and and and. With the casual Fridayization of America, which has been happening since the 90s, we see fewer and fewer suits all the time. When when we were kids, definitely when I was a, a young kid, every person was in a suit or a dress. How many suits did your dad have? A lot of suits. So, you know, my dad was a politician. And um, in the 50s, his look, his signature look was tweed jacket and bow tie. And when he met my mother at the, uh, in the late 50s during the Kennedy administration, you know, Kennedy was the president that uh, modernized the uh, fashion for, for a presidency. Truman. What, what did that mean in, in practice? What, what are the differences between Eisenhower's suits and Kennedy's suits? You know, I, that there Presidential fashion is actually really fascinating, and there were so many great, very fashionable presidents. You know, presidents that were that were really dandies. Chester Arthur. Chester Arthur actually had eighty pairs of pants at one time. Yes, every day he would get up and put on in succession eighty pairs of pants. If you because if you, back then, if you were. <laughs> If you, had, if you had William Howard Taft's facial hair, but you did not have his girth. You had to bulk out. Yeah, I mean, the, that was how you knew you were the person in authority. How many pants did you have? And he got them at Brooks Brothers, if I remember right. Because even in Chester A. Arthur's era, that's where the, gen- the New York gentleman went. That's right. And if you can think about, if you can imagine Chester Arthur's wardrobe at the White House having 80 different trouser options every morning. I mean, you... Uh, I mean, it was a slower time, right? So uh, <laughs> he wasn't getting rushed out of the Situation Room. Yeah, f- foreign policy was happening at, at the letter of. Uh, it would be funny if there was still a, a basement down there for Chester Arthur, but it's you know it's just a um, you know there's no screens, of course. There's just right. one slate board with a 
a, a stagecoach route in dotted lines with an X where the Comanche attack was. Right, and 24 Bartleby the Scrivener is all uh, scratching away. <laughs> Bob Cratchit's down there. I actually get stressed by the idea of 80 pairs of pants. Even just now owning like 10 suits that I've come across through various television endeavors, I'm like, I'm never going to, I have no mood to wear one or the other today. I mean, if you had 80 pairs of pants, you could wear, uh, it would take you, I mean. At the rate of one a day, let me do the math At the rate of one a day, you could wear the same pair of pants four times a year. Right? You'd, Would you drop a little schedule? Yeah, well, you just start at one end of your closet and work your way to the other end, and you and then start again. That's so, true if all the pants are interchangeable. I think I'd be afraid right. I was not wearing a, a September pant. Right, some of them are, right, tuxedo pants. You're not going to wear those to a baseball game. Um, no, I think, well, so this is kind of part of the story of, of, part of our story today. The idea that somewhere along the line... Um, Dressing up became a burden for a modern man or a modern woman, right? The idea of putting thought into your clothes, uh, uh, trying to convey authority, trying to thread that needle of um, you're fashionable but not – or you're stylish but not fashionable. You're, uh, you're, you have authority without, uh, without seeming posh or – or Faye. Here's my argument for the naturalness of bad male fashion. Go. Young boys do not choose to dress up in a, a, appealing little suits. Little little rough and tumble boys don't. But I have a good friend whose who's six-year-old boy became so fascinated with fashion that he decided he wanted to be a fashion designer. And now at age 10 is actually... Like sewing clothes. It's true. I shouldn't generalize from my heterosexual childhood. But I see what you mean about the the sort of our Spanky and our gang version of a little boy. When a little boy is in a suit, it's because his parents have put him in that suit and he is upset. Right. The Norman Rockwell little boy who's got yes. a frog in his pocket. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. He, he's 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 having a bad day because he had to wear that suit. You and your brother were in these terrible tan suits and you felt you felt bad. You you had a frog in there. You wanted that frog out of there. You wanted to go pitch marbles or or whatever. And it's not it's it's not just um, because we were told to, or because they were a little more complicated. It the you know James James Hohenzollern's not wrong. You know the, your right. collar's a little your collar's a little tight, and the tie might chafe, and the sleeves are fiddly and. Well, think of how Steve cuffs. Jobs changed the world because he didn't have to worry about what he was going to wear. He had so much free time that he could invent the iMac. Because all, because he woke up in the morning and he just had indistinguishable from one another cashmere turtlenecks or whatever those were. Mock turtlenecks. I'm sorry. Even even rolling over the top of the turtleneck. <laughs> too much work. Too much work. We would have been, we would have missed out on one uh, bevel on the iPhone if he had had to roll his turtleneck uh, every day. I think it's something about the, about, our modern kind of efficiency culture, and maybe it started with the space program, the idea that that they had discovered that you could just drink a glass of Tang and take one pill that's, that smelled like a turkey dinner, and you wouldn't have to you wouldn't have to worry about food. The future won't have that. The future won't have all these old-fashioned attachments to your daily, gr- you know, part of the efficiency of the future is everybody's in a jumpsuit that looks the same right. and eating their food pellet 
that tastes like roast beef. And it might have come even, be- I mean, it might have come before the space program. We've talked about government cheese. We've talked about the industrialization of food. Um, the fact that all canned pumpkins are actually squash and they're all made in one little town. Uh, industrialization, efficiency, streamlining. I mean, food is now pretty easy to, it's pretty easy to get not just a takeout dinner or a, or a micro no, food dinner. food got more elaborate. It did. But it's still so much easier to make an elaborate meal today than it would have been in 1940. Yes. Microwave ovens, pre-made, pre-cut ingredients, right. et cetera. Your, your, your Hello Fresh box is so much different than going out into the yard with a hatchet to kill, kill the chicken. It's always funny when um, the future, you know, movies try to put people in suits of the future uh-huh. because they want to convey formal wear, but anything like modern formal wear looks old-fashioned. looks like Chester A. Arthur is wearing. You can't put the head of the Federation of Planets in a in a Brooks Brothers suit. They do that thing they did in Aliens where they, they mess around with the lapels. It, yes. It's, a, it's basically a Nehru jacket of some kind. Yeah. You know, it, it's, fit, it's tailored like a suit, but then you do something weird to the collar. Right, pop up the collar. And that conveys that it's the future. And in a way, the, the, the men's suit with, a, with lapels... And pleated pants and buttons up the front, you know, that does go back, a a version of it goes back centuries. And if you take a blazer, even now, and you fold the lapels uh, up and over, you'll realize it's a military tunic. They're all, I I should get one right now and put it on, but any blazer. um, This is a podcast. Just tell people you are. (laughs) Go to your closet right now, take your blazer pull the lapels up and put them together as though there were a button at the neck and you'll see that it's a it's put, a tunic grab some epaulets and and then that's what you would have grab right? your grab your grandpa's iron cross you put your put put brass buttons down the front of it and all of a sudden yeah you're you are uh, you're the kaiser so there the the kind of like the tricorn hat becomes a cowboy hat becomes a bowler hat depending on how much rain has been on it yeah um there are the 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 blazer and the and its connection to uniforms um, is pretty direct, and you can you can gussy it up, you can casual it down. I should say, by the way, that the straight male's aversion to elaborate uh, layers of clothes uh, is something that goes away with contact. Hmm. You know, the longer I had to wear um, formal wear, suit and tie, you know, two years on a Mormon mission. 74 Jeopardies, you know, you, you do, you start to lose the idea that this is unpleasant special occasion wear, and why am I doing this, and wh- wh- what pocket do I put my frog in? Right. It just becomes... You can trick people into thinking that suits are comfortable. Well, and they're kind of fun, right? I mean, they are... Um, More choices. Yeah. And, and also... Look, if you've, got, if you've got 80 um, pa- uh, graphic tees, that's the same as Chester A. Arthur. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, well, if it depends. I mean, if they have different, you know, if wolves howling at the moon, and then you have wolves howling at other wolves. Is it is it a Joy Division cover day? Right. Wolves, wolves, right. Joy Division, wolves. Punisher, Punisher, wolves, <laughs> Joy Division. You've been in my closet. <laughs> uh, but men's fashion, I think, as it became more and more uh, codified and uh, more and more of the energy went out of it, it became um, it became truly a uniform, and by that I mean that the that the the options, the flourish, 
just drained out of it as uh, as we got further and further into the 20th century and um and the idea of i think that you know men's fashion has been attacked on all sides by um by the kind of the general idea that men aren't supposed to pursue fashion uh that it that it, i think toxic the, masculinity is yeah. is killing men's fashion in the in the in the latter half of the 20th century, it was like the last place that you could be, that you could express your straightness by just being dull. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> by being very rumpled. Yeah. Or, clearly, clearly I must be attracted to women because I am not attractive to women at all. If not, if not rumpled, certainly not tailored. Yeah. Right. And, and, and the accessibility of the off the rack suit meant that you could show up in the expected attire without looking like you tried and without really spending any money. Um, and globalization making, um, clothes that look nice on, you know, to the lay person or on first glance, but actually are not nice, more mm, widely available. Right? right. And I think the, and and we talked about it a different, a couple of different times in preppy handbook, uh, world where rich people introduced sports clothing into, mainstream fashion, but sports clothing in, in their version was still very tailored and made out of wonderful fabric. But as soon as you introduce the idea that you can wear sports clothing in daily life, even if that is a cable knit sweater tied around your neck, the next iteration of that, I mean, it takes a while to get to sweatpants on an airplane, but you know, I mean, Ralph Lauren clothes are, are ostensibly sports clothes, um, it's just that the sport is fox hunting, but once streamlining became an option, right? Ten, then tennis clothes, and pretty soon golf clothes, and well, then it's just like, uh, you know, you're just it's shot put clothes. One thing I'm not clear on is how much are we just describing the clothing of the, you know, the clothing of some elite class. I mean, you know, you watch any movie set in 1930s to 50s America and regular working class people are putting on a suit and tie right. just to go to the ice cream parlor. Right. You know? It's the expectation. I think... I but, think but would that have been true in pre-industrial revolution England or France that that even common working people would have been dressing with effort and formality? I I think that it probably, and this would be a, an interesting episode to do. But uh, you know, in um, pre-revolution France, there the the perfumed wig era. Not everyone can wear a perfumed wig, but I think there was still no. Where does the hair come from? There's got to be a there. There's always been attention to detail paid to clothes, and there also always been people that didn't have the time or inclination or eye for it. I mean, uh, before the revolution, the poor people were called the sans culottes, right? The working people could not afford their nice breeches. Right. But they still, I mean, but it, it's not that they were just all wearing shapeless bags. I, and I think it's always been a way to express aspiration, class. Um, you know, you're always trying to attract the eye of Well, then I'm against it people. on just uh, general well, worldwide no, revolution view, uh, grounds, like that we should not be using we should not be using wardrobe to distinguish ourselves from our 
our brethren. That's we should absolutely all be right. Flat gray. We should all wear uh, mousy tongue tunics. Syndico anarchists like us agree. Anarcho syndicalists like us agree. You're you're wearing a shirt right now that you got at uh, Great Northern uh, Outfitter <laughs> Supply or something like yeah, that. Yeah, GNOS. Fifteen dollar <laughs> rack, uh, and it, and it makes you look like a man of the people. I absolutely am a man of the people. But if you think about the presidents of the United States and the the, the band, the presidents of the United States, uh, 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 which all the, uh, the band wearing their peach harvesting outfits. At some point, they decided, and this was Chris Ballou pushing this. I think that their uniform was yellow T-shirt. And black pants or something, you know, really simplified. It would have been funnier if they had each dressed like a different president of the United States. Like, remember how Paul Revere and the Raiders used to dress like uh, uh, founding fathers? There was a, there was a band called um, the Upper Crust, who uh, from and they were from Boston, I think, in the in the the nineties, and they dressed like. Um, yeah, like like Louis Catours. I just saw a picture of the Bo Brummels from the sixties, and they did not dress well. They were they they were ironically named. If you look at the cover of the second Presidents of the USA record, they're actually dressed like different presidents. Oh, so right. you were ahead of the head or behind, or maybe just thinking they would have done it ironically. Of they course, they did it ironically. Everything's ironic from Seattle. Are you kidding? Right, Mark. I think well, not Mark Lindsay. I guess he was from Portland, but he really thought Paul Revere and the Raiders should look like you know they should all wear tricorn hats, and I don't think that was ironic. No, no, no. That was super cool. He thought but, that was a great but it was look. The, you know, it was the sixties, right? Yeah. I think that you hit on something with the with the talk show hosts, talk show hosts, and the president and politicians, people in politics, are the they're the kind of the last refuge of the expectation that you wear a blue suit. Even CEOs, CEOs absolutely express nowadays that they're not your stodgy old IBM guy. Um, because they're all wearing, I don't know what, popped collars and, and sunglasses on top of their head. I mean, I don't know what these Silicon Valley That's right. kids They've wear. got glasses on top of their heads. They're pushing up the <laughs> sleeves of their sports jackets. I mean, and isn't then, Elon Musk wearing some kind of bondage harness? <laughs> right now, Elon Musk definitely has a ball gag in, and I'm in favor of that. <laughs> At a press conference. <laughs> but I think that, I think as casual Friday became casual every day, um, the suit became less and less just a thing that people wear and more and more. It actually had the reverse effect where it became completely symbolic rather than, you know, symbolic of power. I have chosen to look like an old-timey status symbol. Right, or I'm forced to look like an ah, old-timey status right. symbol rather than the kind of what what actually is an equalizing effect if everyone is in a suit um, then it's very subtle, like whose suit is is expensive. But you know, there is a sense of of uh, a kind of universal uniform. I guess that's one reason why Mormon missionaries still do it. It it, it does convey a certain kind of old timey ecclesiastical churchmanness, mm-hmm. but it's also um, it's a great leveler. We all went to the same box store in Provo, and we all look like this, whether we're sugar beet farmers or scions to a tech empire. Yeah, and that had to have been true. I mean, if you think, if you look at the pictures of people, I mean, Miles Davis and John F. Kennedy were wearing the same suit. Like they in would alternate. It's literally the same one. They would alternate. Yeah, it was a little short on Kennedy. <laughs> uh, the sleeves were a little long on Miles. But no, that if the the. Um, you know the fashion that those those slick kind of thin lapel sharkskin suits. I mean, yes. You look at pictures of that era of civil rights movement marches, and 
everybody's wearing a suit. Uh, and I mean, everybody looks fantastic, right? But it's, they really do. But then you 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 flip over, and the people that they're marching against, or or the the you know the highest echelons of the government, basically dress the same, wearing the same suit. It's going to decline so much that you know in fifty years people are going to look at photos of the women's march where everybody's wearing a Ruth Bader Ginsburg T-shirt and a, a pussy, pussy hat. hat, and everyone will say, "Look how fantastic." <laughs> They looked. <laughs> They're not just wearing the shapeless kelp blobs of, of today, twenty forty eight. I think in modern in in modern times, we regard President Obama, Barack Obama, as being a very well dressed president, um, stylish, fashionable. You know, he looks good in a he looks good in his clothes. It was part of the whole image. He's cool in kind of a restrained way that his predecessor was not. You don't really care what George W. Bush's iPod playlist is, for example. Right. Uh, and George W. Bush was uh, of that school. A lot, a lot of presidents post-Ronald Reagan took elements of what Ronald Reagan brought to fashion. Western California, Hollywood wear. Exactly. And George W. Bush made himself appear to be a man of the people, even though he was a silver spooner. But he cut a lot of brush. Cut a lot of brush. Because what he did was he wore jeans, he had a belt buckle, he tucked his shirt into his jeans, and he had cowboy boots on. And this was a thing that, you know, he borrowed from Reagan, and Reagan obviously borrowed from um, from Hollywood, well, Hollywood, from, the Hollywood West, maybe Hollywood West, and uh, Lyndon Johnson did this too when he was on his ranch in his in his Stetson hat. You know, he was. It was obvious that he this was his time off, but he was still dressed pretty well. But Reagan, you know, Reagan was a real dandy, and I have a lot of criticism directed toward Ronald Reagan and his policies, but you cannot criticize Reagan's sense of style. He was impeccably tailored, absolute, and for a you know a man of his size and age, he always looked great, and his and he clearly loved clothes and took uh, took a lot of care in how he was tailored. It, you can look at him and see that he he had a tailor who knew him and who um, who made his clothes for him. And in fact, I know the name of his tailor. It was a Beverly Hills tailor by the name of uh, Frank Mariani. Who made Reagan's clothes? I think for decades. It's too bad I wasn't one of the game show host guys. You know, a Botany Five Hundred or something. Yeah, right. President <laughs> Reagan is dressed by Mister Guy by of, of Rodeo <laughs> Drive, the Johnny Carson suit wear. <laughs> uh, but I think the twentieth century presidents. I mean, we we can look back at them and kind of gauge their style. Uh, and you can even rank them, and, I, and there are I'm sure you have hundreds of. I definitely do it all the time, but there are hundreds of websites ranking the style of various presidents. But um, you know, George W. Bush was in a in that post Clinton world where you know Clinton Clinton was so casual going into the presidency, so famous for his short shorts and his baggy t-shirts and he's not just a boomer he's from the south yeah he's really schlubby looking going in and he figured out how to put himself into just enough of a suit to you know and he had he had that arsenio hall moment of style he was the president with the with the ray-bans on but you wouldn't look at him and that he was president during an era when men's fashion had really hit the skids. Um, 
we're all products of our time. Yeah, the, but the really baggy tailoring then, not um, you know that that weird low low rise double breasted suit thing that was really popular during the nineties. Oh, I remember. Um, so Clinton Clinton was kind of swimming upstream in terms of looking. He was swimming in presidential. The suits. <laughs> like, <laughs> he was like David Byrne. Uh, and George Herbert Walker Bush was maybe the last truly preppy, staid, dull but expensive-looking president. Yeah, government uh, government functionary. He's got right. ten of those in a row in his closet. Botany five hundred. Obama brought a brought a certain kind of style and class back to the presidency, but it was not his tailoring. Really, Obama was. Very conservative, super boring dresser. I assume, I don't know, maybe you can disabuse me of this, but I assume this is something he curated. You sense this whenever he drops a podcast or a playlist that to this day, Obama is making sure that he is neither too edgy nor too dull. He's trying to walk a fine line where the broadest possible swath of Americans will find him cool and not be threatened by him because unlike the other, well, he, you know, he has something going, not going for him that the other 45 presidents do. Right. And and it is a big question, I think, whether or not he's being dressed by committee or whether he is naturally not interested in clothes. Um, hmm. What Obama has that a lot of presidents don't have is that he's uh, very comely, right? He has He's very fit. He's got a— he's, I, didn't, I didn't want to say this when you were saying Clinton looked kind of schlubby, but— Clinton was also eating a lot of, of quarter pounder meals, right? And and you know Donald Trump obviously like not a not a uh, it doesn't have a swimmer's body. Um, That's the meanest thing I have ever heard anyone say and, about President Trump. You know George W. Bush is just you know kind of a standard uh, American guy. He does but, not have Obama's broad shoulders. Yeah, broad shoulders and and slim waist. I mean Obama is a is a beautiful man, and so he has the gift that beautiful people do of being able to make even like uninspired clothes look good. That really bothers me when I'm aware of how much how much padding is going into the shoulders of my suit to make me look like a game show host. <laughs> and the padding, you know, is evident. Uh, there on me, you mean? No, I mean, (laughs) I think it's one of the problems of modern suits is that the tailoring isn't careful enough. It's not good in other words. And so you can see, um, you can see behind the magic trick of, of a good suit and say like, well, this isn't really a great suit. It's, um, it doesn't fit. And it's maybe the main critique of post Ronald Reagan, politician suits because it's not just uh restricted to the president the the senators and the congress people they follow the lead of uh of the culture and suits at a certain point lost all their imagination is there a partisan divide are uh republican senators looking to their de facto party leader and vice versa or the converse not vice versa <laughs> well it 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 became um and 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 really exemplified in this uh, in this incident that we're about to discuss, it became another way to attack a politician a- along partisan lines. I think that there was some, uh, you know, D- Jimmy Carter 
tried to be a casual president and break the uh, you know the the sort of Richard Nixon version of the just a man in a gray suit. Sure, sweaters. He, uh, Carter S- sent Amy to public school. Yeah, Carter tried to wear cardigan sweaters. He had tweed jackets. You know, he tried to be a, more approachable in fashion. Unfortunately, Carter in the late seventies was dealing with a, another really low point in American style. There were a lot of artificial fabrics. You know, the tailoring was big wide lapels and short jackets. It didn't look good. Um, And so when Reagan came in, he was very unapologetic about... It's ironic. He's the Teflon president, but he's not wearing polyester. No, he's wearing really, really expensive uh, fabrics. And there was a little bit of a sense that if Reagan hadn't been such a a plain-spoken guy, that he would have been such a dandy that it would have been... uh, he would have seemed like an exclusive, you know, or, or like an elitist. Maybe it, maybe Trump's uh, or bad tailoring is then just part of his genius to to remind the common working man that he, you know, hey, I may have a, I may have penthouses all over the world, but I know, have I, no idea how to wear clothes. I'm, I'm one of you. Look how long my tie is. Trump is, I think, by far the worst dressing president and maybe man. <laughs> Uh, in history, and it's astonishing because the the fabric of his suits is very expensive. Like his suits are made for him, and they're they're expensive. It's just that you can see that the man himself is dictating to his tailor what he wants. He wants it to be cut this way. He wants the pants to be like this. The, and, bi- the big guy wants his steaks well done, and it doesn't right. matter how expensive the cut of meat is or well healed the chef is. Right, burn them. Burn them, burn them and turn them. And so, you know, Trump getting engaged in how his suits are made is the problem because he's not, he doesn't have a sense of what would look good on him. You've always been, even before they were sponsoring Omnibus, you were always a big fan and uh, proponent of Mac Weldon. Yeah, well, you know, I, not like everybody, I like to wear underwear. I'll wear it's it. It's kind of your brand. I'll wear it every day. I'll wear underwear everywhere. But not the same pair every day. Well, no, that's the thing. Underwear is another place. There are some people that just want to wear tidy whities that they get at the drugstore. But underwear is a place that I really like to have fun. I like my underwear to be colorful. I like it to have um, stripes and dots. And Mack Weldon is good for that? Mack Weldon is a very, very comfortable, soft, and also has lots of cool colors. Um, they come in different styles, so you can get the briefs, or you can get the boxer briefs, or you can get the Zim Zams or the Zippity Zaps. I've been, <laughs> we, we don't do Bill Cosby impressions, I don't think. The sponsors don't like it. For, no, no, no. For some reason. No, that's not what I was saying at all. Uh, I've been wearing the shirts and the hoodies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You like the- uh, I the, like them very some much. Some of their garments. Yeah, I got their sweatshirts. Uh, nice stuff. If, if you're, you're right. It feels really good, and you can tell it's like- Good quality, kind of high tech stuff, like yeah. some fabric that maybe fell to earth in a meteorite. Possibly, yep. I don't want to. I don't want to make claims, but super fabric that was re- reverse engineered from UFOs that live under the ocean. But also, I love their uh, pants. They have these kind of multi-purpose pants pockets, uh, but it feels like sort of sweatpants. But they look more stylish. Wear that stuff all the time. If you order, it's you know it's all order online, and you get enrolled automatically in their loyalty program. So you like once you've made one order, you might get free shipping on that order, and uh, you'll save more on every subsequent order. 
It's I, pretty I, cool. I really like their underwear that has silver threaded through it, like microscopic silver threads, because it protects my uh, lower regions from vampires. I have often thought that the police should re-record their song "So Lonely" with the new lyrics, Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon. Right. Yeah, it'd be good. I like it. Also, I cannot make the claim that they protect your private parts against vampires. I just said they came from meteorites. I don't think they're going to come after you for saying that they're vampire-proof. Mac Weldon really wants you to be comfortable, as they want me to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair of underwear. You can keep it, and this is the thing. You're not going to not like it, but weird, if you didn't like it, you could still keep it, wear it as a hat, and they'll refund the money, no questions asked. I just realized vampires would need an invitation to get into your underwear. So it's probably okay, unless you're making very bad decisions <laughs> in, in your life. So many bad decisions, viz inviting vampires into my underwear. It used to happen all the time. If you're interested, if you've heard us do these Mac Weldon spots often enough that you're actually going to try it out, yep. you can get 20% off your first order by visiting MacWeldon.com slash omnibus and enter promo code omnibus. You'll watch the savings stack up. Ka-ching. When you go to MacWeldon.com slash omnibus and enter the promo code. Just a normal way to say promo code <laughs> there. Omnibus for 20% off. That's MacWeldon. Reinventing Men's Basics. The event we're discussing, or uh, the, the event I'm describing today, was uh, a moment that happened during Obama's presidency, uh, the late summer of 2014. Rare for us, by the way, to put a 21st century event in the omnibus. Only the very most important of events go in. And it belongs in the omnibus for a couple of reasons. And, and as we'll see, um, the event itself was not really anything, but the reaction to the event and then the reaction to the reaction to the event uh, and and now the recursiveness of that reaction is um, it's become uh, it's become almost a like a, a perfection of the form. But what happened the 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 inciting event was uh, a press conference right before Labor Day in 2014. ISIS was ISIS in Syria was uh, in all the headlines. It was kind of one of the biggest sort of political crises of 2014. What to do about the Islamic State that appeared to be sweeping across the Middle East? Suddenly, the Middle East is hot. Yeah, again. and and they, and they appear to be reestablishing the caliphate, right? And and the the possibility that that this group could unite the the Arab world. Very upsetting to a nation that has realized how much, uh, you know, blood and treasure it's invested in not having that happen in that exact part of the world. Yeah. And yet here it, we are. How did it get to this? Right. So, we, and how did it get to this so abruptly? And how, how did it get to, I mean, this is the opposite of the, of the idea that we were going to bring democracy to, um, is it possible we made the, everything worse to the Middle East? Are we the baddies? <laughs> and you know, and it, and it comes hot on the heels of the Arab Spring, where we really believed, like, oh wow, democratic revolutions across the Arab world. It's finally arrived. It's going to be the Lebanon's the Paris of the Middle East, sweeping again. east from Tunisia like everything does. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, all these guys in in black uh, turbans, riding in the back of Toyota Hiluxes, all got swords. 
And what 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 Obama didn't? I mean, it took us by surprise, and the Obama administration didn't really have a response at first, or really later. <laughs> Uh, but at this press conference, this was, you know, it was a press conference called to to discuss these uh, these startling and terrifying events in Syria. It was a hot summer day in Washington, D.C., and Obama arrives at the press conference in a tan suit, what you would call a khaki suit. Mm-hmm. And the khaki suit is— well, You said it's when? It's around Labor Day? It's uh, August 28, okay. 2014. The tan suit is— absolutely a fixture of Washington DC summer style. Like just like the seersucker suit. It's a kind of It's uh, a hot, humid, muggy place in August. That's right. And you don't want to always be in a in a blue worsted suit. Uh the the tan suit, my dad used my dad used to wear these um these Brooks Brothers khaki suits. He called them CIA suits because in his experience, everybody in the CIA because they might have to go to a warm weather climate. At yeah, little hop, hop on a plane. You might be in Panama tomorrow, <laughs> sir. And there, there are a couple of versions of them. There's this. There's the light tan. There's the medium tan, and then there's kind of the green khaki version of them. Um, I always admired the suits because my dad liked them, and he called them CIA suits. And so, of course, I wanted to be in the CIA. So whenever I had a chance, you know, I had. I bought a, a khaki suit at J Press one time in New York City, and I just felt like the biggest deal um, having this J Press suit. And the woman that sold it to me, as I was walking around in it, she was like, you don't wear suits, do you? I was like, no. She was like, yeah, I can just tell. I mean, I sell a lot of suits to guys that wear suits, and you don't wear suits. I feel like you shouldn't say Damn that it. if you're trying to sell the suit. Is, Damn it. Is she not on commission? Well, that's the thing about J Press in New York City. They don't care if you buy a suit or not. It's, you know, <laughs> They'll be fine. You go screw yourself. But Obama shows up at this press conference, and there's just something about the expectation that he – because he said – Obama famously said in an interview with Vanity Fair in 2012, just a couple of years before, he said, uh, you'll see I only wear gray or blue suits. I'm trying to pare down decisions. I don't want to make decisions about what I'm eating or wearing because I want to save that you know, that uh, decision-making energy for the big – I, I'm paraphrasing him at the but, end here. But, but that does seem very Obama-like, right? Like this, yeah. this does not, that's not purely a cover story for, look, I want to dress in a way that conservative dads won't think is too flashy. It, 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 it's really in the family of like, he almost said, I'm on, only eating Soylent milkshakes <laughs> now because I, uh, I don't want to have to think about food. From some presidents, you wouldn't buy it, but you kind of do buy it from Obama. You do. And it's sort of what you love about him, right? Obama does feel a little bit like a machine. Um, and it's what's, uh, it, it's what made him it's what so some good pe- in that moment. And some people may have found it off-putting. This guy's just engineered to be president and, you know, ew, that's a little, that's a little ambitious. And maybe they wouldn't have said that about a white guy saying the same stuff. He's a young guy too. You yeah, know, Obama was a yeah. young president and a sporty one. And, um, you know, and I, I think that Obama's that the, the his careful nature was actually true of him. Although he, you're, you're right, he was under tremendous scrutiny, and he must have had people telling him, uh, "It's wise that you are, you know, not releasing video of every time you surf or ball." Yeah, exactly. And I think you know when he did play basketball. I mean, his the people that supported Obama loved it, and the people that hated him probably 
I mean, watched him play basketball and had all kinds of mean things. You had Fox saying that there would be hip hop barbecues right. at the White House, which is not even a dog whistle. <laughs> it's, a, it's, just, a, it's the regular kind of referee whistle that a, everyone could hear. Just a siren. Right. But Obama shows up to this press conference in this tan suit. And uh, what we have in 2014 that we didn't in 2004 was Twitter. And within the space of this press conference, you know, a, a very brief moment in time, there are over 4,000 tweets referencing the suit. Pro or con? Well, mostly con. Um, the suit just takes people by surprise. It, it, uh, it rattles their eyeballs because Obama is always in a blue or black suit with a, a very conservative, unimaginative tie but we, by this point in time, we've come to expect all politicians and really all men on television to be in a blue or uh, or otherwise dark suit, blue or gray or black. They should just have a wood standee at the podium that you stand yeah. behind, like, yeah, right. like one of those carnival photo ops. Look through a hole, right. And you're going to have a red tie or a red tie. And a flag pin. Maybe a yellow tie and a flag pin. So this suit just seems like where did, you know, this guy just came off of a, of a, a, not even a golf course, but like if you saw if you saw a, a guy at the office wearing it, you would think nothing, nothing. But if you see a president, it's like, is he on safari? If you went out onto the street at that moment, right outside the White House, three quarters of the people walking past would have been in in that outfit. In that outfit. Uh, but maybe, maybe you want to get to this. But had presidents worn? Is there was there precedent? For- almost almost every president prior to that had worn tan suits. Um, With impunity. W- Ronald Reagan famously wore a brown suit. Uh, bef- after he'd been elected president, but before he'd taken office, he showed up to tour the White House in a brown, and not like a conservative brown suit, but a striped suit that was the color of cocoa. So which jelly belly? Root beer? Yeah. Chocolate pudding? Yeah, chocolate pudding. Oh, wow. And... I re- I was old enough to remember the controversy of Reagan's brown suit. Oh, there there it did elicit remark. It became a thing. Reagan's brown suit became a thing, but it was it was used to illustrate that Reagan was his own man. Yes, he had returned the brown suit to uh to the to the world. He went on a Reagan went on a press or a, I'm sorry, like a. Uh, like a junket to Europe, he met Margaret Thatcher. He went and met all the G7 heads. And one of those days, he wore a Glenn plaid suit, a Czech suit. Do you think Helmut Kohl was like, it, it, it was all over the newspapers. What is this guy doing? He's dressed like a clown. Well, you know, my dad had a Glenn plaid suit that he wore in the early 60s. It's an amazing suit. It just looks weird at, at the G7. It just looks weird when everyone else is in a blue suit. But Reagan's style was was referred to all the time in the newspaper. But there wasn't you couldn't you couldn't take him down a peg because he because he looked great. It was just it was just shocking. In the case of Obama's tan suit, unfortunately, that day it didn't look great. You don't think it looks good? I'm looking at it now. Well, the problem was if you look through the pictures of Obama that summer. Um, He's actually wearing what I think is the exact same suit on Easter. 
He's uh, he's he was photographed. He uh, on Easter the the family went because they used to do this, you know, go to a different church yeah. in D.C. and they went to uh, Easter service at the 19th Street Baptist Church. And he's and wearing this tan. Suit. He's wearing this exact suit, and he looks awesome. Uh, the suit is is tailored well. I mean, not like it's not blowing your mind. It's, the suit's not off the rack, right? What, what, what does no. Obama wear? So. There's a tailor in Washington, D.C. that is, um, I guess, widely regarded as the tailor to presidents. Now, he's since passed away. But uh, his name was Georges de Paris. And he was a very diminutive man with uh, long gray hair who styled himself as an immigrant from Paris who'd come to the United States uh, chasing a woman had uh, she'd, she'd abandoned him and he lived on the streets and then gradually worked his way up this dramatic story, became a cutter at a tailor, tailor and then gradually, I think, over, wow. over time became a successful tailor in his own right and then became the tailor to presidents. The American dream? Hang and out your shingle. He, he claimed, uh, he came to the U.S. In, in 1960 but was already a successful tailor in time to have made suits for LBJ. Wow. Now, most of the presidents had suits made a variety of places. Reagan had his own tailor, clearly. Um, but uh, but Georges de Paris, his, uh, his tailor shop was right there by the White House at 14th and G. And so every American president, and I think it's documented, every American president, had suits made by Georges. Now, Georges de Paris was not... French. No. His name was Georgios uh, Christopoulos. Oh, well, he, he, he is at least from, is he an immigrant? He was from Kalamata, Greece. First generation Greek American. And uh, he was poor, but had studied tailoring in Europe. And, um, you know, from the age of 12, he was studying tailoring and came to the United States. And, you know, like a lot of Americans that like to tell a story about that time they were homeless, including me, um, you know, I, he, yeah, he spent a week uh, living out of Couch his car surfing. when his girlfriend broke up with him. But he he dined out on that story the rest of his life. But he did make suits for everybody. He had anecdotes uh, about all the presidents. George W. Bush loved him. Um, I don't think the... You just want a fun guy when he's, when he's, he, when, he's when he's playing with the measuring tape. He, he's got some banter. I don't think the Taylorati think much of his tailoring. Ah, uh, celebrity tailor. And uh, Obama's suit, he, at least... Uh, at Easter, you know, it it fits him well, but it's it it suffers from being slightly too large, which is the default of all modern men. Um, their suit is most guys wear their suits too big, with the exception of like young hipsters who wear their suits a little too, too small. small. And it's very hard to find some someone who is who is wearing their suit the proper size. If you're wearing uh, it too a little too big, is that because well I might gain five pounds? Is it? Uh, it's just, you know, if your suit is I think impeccably tailored, you feel very comfortable in it. If your suit is off the rack and being tailored to you, um, and it's and it's uh, slim, you're going to feel that it's too tight. You know, it's going to restrict your movement. And so, in order to feel comfortable in your suit. You get it. You get it a little loose, but that looseness often appears in the shoulders and chest as a kind of, like you're saying, shoulder paddy kind of uh, 
there end up being gaps between the suit and the shirt. The it just seems blousey. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at Clinton in some of his suits, he looks like David Byrne in, in Stop Making Sense. You know, the suit, the architecture of the suit. Um, he's a, he was a big boy. He would step out of it and it would just look. It would stand there like Voltron. Yeah, he's just swimming in. And and Donald Trump often looks like he's uh, he's draped in curtains. You know, there's so much extra fabric that it's hard to know. Like what, and I think this is part of the part of the point, and also part of the mistake, is that he thinks it's concealing his, you know, his bulk, um, but it really is accentuating it. So Obama's suit looks great, and the difference in how it looks on Easter and how it looks at this press conference is, I think, the tie. I was going to ask because I'm looking at the tie. The tie. At the press conference, is so unimaginative. It's just like a what? What is this brownish gray called? Uh, it's just brownish gray. I don't. I mean, the the look is like, uh, like the steak you would get in prison. It's a prison steak color. <laughs> and that's what it's called, <laughs> right? Prison I would steak. like to paint my living room prison steak. <laughs> Whereas at Easter, he's got a kind of you know like a sunshiny tie, and it and it really ties the room together. And something in 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 conjunction with his maybe not so much the the bronze skin but maybe the salt and pepper hair yeah the last thing he needs is more kind of brownish gray and this is where the boldness of of knowing how to dress comes in if if you can wear a pocket square or a or a tie or a shirt with a little color um it will glue together a tan suit in a way that a tan suit with a with a off-white shirt and a and a prison steak tie, um, it does wash him out. And you look at the you look at the pictures of him in the press conference, and you could see people going, "Huh, that's a weird choice." But because it's Twitter, it immediately becomes a story. Obama's tan suit. It's this is, a story. This is something the future will never understand: is that journalism in our time just became. Here's what people are saying on Twitter, and that's what it was. And even though Twitter is a very tiny little sub ecosystem of our culture with its own weird rules and dramas and life cycles, as you know, you and I know perfectly well, because the media is overrepresented there. It's very easy for the media to say, everyone's buzzing about Obama's tan suit. Now, nobody watches a press conference about ISIS. (laughs) What that means is that a small feedback loop on Twitter started buzzing about Obama's tan suit. And I think we'll talk about this more and more uh, on the omnibus because I think that this is a transitional moment in history. But yeah, all the newspapers closed and all the magazines closed and all these journalists suddenly found themselves homeless and they still had a platform on Twitter. They migrated to Twitter and... The presence of journalists there legitimizes Twitter as a and it's, they're not wrong place I to mean, get news. This really is where stuff happens first, and a breadth of commentary from like very smart people yeah. happens first. And followed hot on the heels of a bunch of commentary from some not very smart people. Yes. And 2014 was right about the time that I started to really get my news on Twitter, and I would. I'd meet people in the street and I'd go, oh yeah, did you hear about the thing? And they'd go, no, where did you hear about that? Because they weren't on Twitter. Like you and I had just seen 800 people talking yeah. about it. In our view, it's uh, it's the talk of the town. And I still had, you know, sometimes I had news a day before because everybody else still was 
you know, getting their news from conventional sources. Patricia Lockwood just put out a, uh, a novel, the first half of which is kind of set on Twitter. She doesn't name it. She calls it The Portal. But the book is called No One Is Talking About This, which is the feeling you get when you feel like you're plugged into this world that knows the scoop, and yet your family and friends are not talking about this. How do they not know? Right. 2014 was that, I think, very close to this tipping point. Um, but by the end of the press conference, the story was not, uh, it had nothing to do with ISIS ultimately, but, um, it became a partisan issue because this was also kind of the, this was Fox news in its big, in its ascendancy as a, as an anti Obama universe. They have unlimited time to talk about whatever Obama does because they have an audience with unlimited patience for, uh, Obama surveillance. And the story was that the suit was disrespectfully casual, that Obama is talking about serious matters. He's, a ser- he's supposed to be the president and a serious person. He's supposed to be conveying to ISIS that he's a no-nonsense type of character, but he's here. His message is, we don't have a strategy yet to deal with ISIS, and he's in a summer suit, an, uh, an, uh, like an incredible breach of expectation of uh, – you know, it undermines presidential authority, and Fox went on the warpath about it. In but it's also f- funny, right? It's also yes. a thing that they're conscious about it being a like a, a small matter. As you and I know, this is catnip to Twitter. Something that has a a relatable, funny sounding hook. Yeah, but um, also is red meat to you, to the prejudices of your audience. Yeah. And the, the, the memes came fast and furious. Uh, you know, people within an hour were, were, uh, were framing this in terms of yes, we tan as a, as a play on yes, we can. These are all dad jokes that you, you would appreciate. Uh, um, I'm writing this down. Yes, the audacity of taupe. <laughs> See, it rhymes with hope. See, it really, it, it, it uh, knocked it out of the park. I want something with fawn. Uh, what do you got? Go ahead. You're the one. You can get it. It's a matter of stone. I remember nothing about Obama-era America. Yeah. It seems so long it ago. It was a long time ago. But uh, but it made the rounds. Representative Peter King from New York City. Oh, boy. Or New, I'm sorry, New York, not New York City. Not New York City. Uh, King, King, very much an iconoclastic uh, guy who over time became more and more conservative as it played better and better. Um, it kind of ended as... Straight up white nationalist, which is funny because before nine eleven, he was a guy that that like really supported the um, the Muslim population in his district. Yeah. He had a, his picture taken uh, hanging in mosques all over. You know, very much like supportive. And then, yeah, at, by the end, he just retired this year, and by the end, it was a was a total crank. But at the time, two thousand fourteen, he did this long press conference where he said, "This is you know." This is outrageous that he wore this suit. He said, one of his quotes, was, and this is garbled uh, grammar, there's no way I don't think any of us can excuse what the president did yesterday. I agree with that and its opposite. <laughs> there's no way any of us cannot don't disagree with ever forgive. I, I can neither not condone nor or dispute that. And so it became then, uh, there was actually uh, one of these uh, talking head shows, uh, a panel show, where there were four people sitting around a desk talking about Obama's tan suit. Two of them were wearing tan suits. 
Uh, and they were, they all agreed that this was very There, there must have been a Fox News memo that we're, everybody wear a blue suit today. We're covering the tan suit. It became, uh, it became like clearly a thing everybody needed to comment on. So like, um, GQ had a take. The New York Times did a big article on it. Vanessa Friedman, who was the chief fashion critic, um, of the New York Times drew some interesting, uh, she was the first one, I think, to draw uh, interesting parallels between the scrutiny that Obama was receiving and what was very much a commonplace experience for any woman in politics. Ah, right. So uh, there was very quickly a meme of Hillary Clinton sitting looking at her phone, and the meme said, President Obama, welcome to my world. Because during her campaign, and I think this has been true for every female politician and, and er- every woman in the public eye, there's this like incredibly disproportionate amount of scrutiny directed at their clothes. There is no equivalent of the invisible blue suit right? for a woman in, in power. Well, and Margaret Thatcher was uh, someone who, when she first was running for, uh, or when she was first in politics in the UK, was still dressing like a woman of her era. Uh, She's just a mom and a research chemist. Yeah, but, you know, she was wearing hats and pearls and, um, and wasn't taken seriously and was, you know, her clothes and her style were being critiqued all the time. And Thatcher... In her transformation to becoming the Iron Lady, she, you know, she she stopped wearing hats. She adopted that sort of sprayed on helmet hair. Buffon. Um, she she started wearing blue suits, and she kept her pearls. But she, you know, started wearing this um, this costume that became kind of the costume of a modern yeah, businesswoman. If you get a uniform, then it does gradually become invisible to people. You've achieved what what um, a male politician gets. Handed, and you know it's the same reason why Daniel Radcliffe wears the same black T-shirt and jeans all the time because the paparazzi can't get new pictures of him. Right, exactly. And and Thatcher, I think, yeah, yeah, she established like, well, this is what a serious woman looks like, and um, and I think you know gave cover to a whole generation of women in business and politics. So it's like, well, you don't have to you don't have to think about it. You wear a, you wear a suit with a blouse and it's got a high neckline, so nobody can comment on your bosom. And um, and just have your hair quaffed in such a way that it, it also never is subject to critique. Uh, and Thatcher always looked great, I think. And you see her with Reagan, and they just you know it's like salt and pepper shaker. In I mean, fact, I was I was with you. Like I was I was going to give you a a, a buy on uh, you know you can't criticize Reagan's fashion, but now it turns out you just love all the. All the Reagan era, all the big '80s conservative. I, I'm just saying there should be either either a salt and pepper shaker set of Reagan and Thatcher or a chess set of their two administrations. <laughs> Is this why you're dressed like Francois Mitterrand right now? <laughs> but the but uh, Vanessa Friedman kind of rejoiced a little bit in the fact that Obama was getting raked over the coals because she said, you know, it's about time that men started experiencing this kind of scrutiny for their clothes the way women always have. Uh, but but she, is, isn't it easy to – well, maybe this is what you're going to lead to, but isn't it easy to make kind of a progressive argument the other way, that Obama is being singled out uh, in a way that a white president would not? Um, you know, tying into Fox News's audience preconception that Already, there's something unpresidential about his skin tone in these situations. And as we all know, you know, we associate certain immigrant cultures with flashy 
clothing choice. I'm thinking about the Zoot Suit Riots of LA of the 30s, just this idea that a a forward cut or especially brightly, unusually colored suit um, doesn't seem respectable, especially on a people of a certain ethnicity. As you sit and formulate this argument, you are um, you're doing what did happen and what does now happen on Twitter all the time, which is that every single argument you could possibly formulate and make got formulated and made, <laughs> right? Like the people that wanted this to be a, a, a question of racism or, or classism or, or uh, feminism or anything you could make a case for got made. Take inflation. If a take has already been made, you need a newer stranger take. And this was, so there was the, 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 the symbolism of it then went into the kind of tinfoil hat crowd of uh, where people were suggesting that this was intentional. It was a message to ISIS. What is he trying to convey? It was a message to his supporters. It was a message to his opponents. It, the khaki color was militaristic. So maybe it was a, <laughs> you know, maybe it was a message to the military that he, you know, that he wanted to, that he was ready for a war in the desert. Um, it's part of the Twitterati that there not only be a take, but that it be. A new take, or else why would you read mine? Right. And a super-duper hot take about class, race, politics. That gets more clicks. That's right. And so all of that happened. Well, uh, because it was because the Obama administration was pretty well on top of everything. I mean, the argument that you're making happened in a— Like, Sean Hannity, back in 2009, made a big two-day to-do about the fact that Obama ordered Dijon mustard on his hamburger. I remember. And that was a flipperoo, right? Like, well, which is he? Is he a black guy or is he too fancy? Is he an out-of-touch elite? Yeah, Yeah, which one? I mean, and it was part of the culture of then and now of just, like, every take, just shoot at the person from every direction. Yeah. but this was a news story. This became a, a news story that just recapitulated itself. Uh, several days later, they were still talking about the tan suit because of the feedback loop of Twitter. Because then the joke was about how ridiculous it was that the tan suit was such a big deal. Yes. At which point it entered the popular culture, Twitter culture, as the... Uh, the exemplifying instance of a that Obama was treated unfairly or that Obama was given special, depending on your political belief that Obama was given special dispensation or, you know, like either way or special scrutiny or special scrutiny. And then enter the Trump years where Trump was, you know, on a hourly basis overturning all kinds of norms, Washington norms, not just fashion, social norms, norms, you know, like democratic norms, norms of government. And this, uh, meme became a stock response in the culture. Trump would, would, uh, you know, walk out in a press conference and say, I am the chosen one. Uh, God has specially ordained me to make peace with, uh, North Korea. I would like to join the Saudi royal family in touching this glowing orb. <laughs> I would like to go to North Korea with uh, Dennis Rodman and see my good buddy, Kim Jong-un. And a certain percentage, a measurable percentage of the responses 
on Twitter would say, do you remember when there was all this fuss about Obama's tan suit? And there is something to the idea that Obama ran such a clean shop that it was really hard for right-wing media at the time. There's a reason why there were 19 Benghazi hearings. It was because they did not get thrown a lot of red meat. It was it was a not a scandal-prone administration. And so, the, you know, in the, in the mind of the left now, the, the tan suit kerfuffle is just a sign of how little critics had to work with. How, how unfairly the Democrats are scrutinized right. uh, relative to the Republicans. Like we, uh, there, there's always that thing of like, can you imagine if a Democratic president said this, what would happen? Oh my gosh. Um, I, I need to, whatever that phrase is, I need to mute that on Twitter. I know, because it's, you know, it's, it's Guess, guess what, it, it teaches me nothing to imagine that. But we're also only 10 years past the Howard Dean scream, where Howard ah, Dean right. at, a, at, a, uh, at a rally his voice cracked as he was saying, "We're you know we're and on to Washington. We're going to go on to Iowa and then Pennsylvania and then to Washington." Ah! And it it uh, you know that was the end of his campaign, the end of his uh, political career in a, in a lot of ways, or you know uh, as certainly, a candidate, yeah. certainly it it tempered it. Um, but what's incredible about the tan suit controversy is if you go on Twitter today and search for. Obama tan suit, a measurable number of tweets will be referencing it. Um, it has become a thing in the culture that transcends. Uh, there are people making the reference who didn't see the event. If you had asked me what he wore a tan suit to, I would have had no idea. Getting on a helicopter, you got me. Yeah. And he, you know, Obama laughed it off and rightfully so. And I think uh, a lot of the people in his inner circle were like, he really likes that suit. It's, you know, it's kind of one of his favorite suits. And they used it um, as a joke within the administration. In fact, uh, because, you know, Obama looked great in tuxedos. I mean, he looked great in certain suits. And they would, the, the, the Obama campaign actually tweeted out a picture of the suit on a hanger before, um, like, b- before an inauguration event or before the, the the correspondence dinner or something, something he'd be in a tuxedo, and they were like, "Yep, he's getting ready," you know, about to put on the suit. Um, it was, you know, it was a way of kind of flipping a little bit of attitude back at them. But it's an example of the the fact that a um, that the thing now has taken on such a life of its own that the tan suit comment on Twitter is no longer referencing Obama's Obama and the suit. Yeah, it references a certain kind of discourse. Right. Yeah. It has become a, a and I think you and I think the I think it could be reappropriated by really anybody who wanted to use it of any political stripe. Yeah. This last summer, uh, Mitch McConnell showed up at the White House to meet with Donald Trump in basically the exact suit. And the Republican uh, caucus a few years prior had instituted what they called Seersucker Thursday, where uh, <laughs> trying to bring back the Seersucker as an ex- uh, as a suit that communicated... The South will rise again. Yeah, a Southern gentility. <laughs> like, hey, we need to remind people that... What? We're not just a bunch of hillbillies. Like we're Southern gentlemen. We're 
We're like small town lawyers. We're Atticus Finch. And also plantation owners. But yeah, we'll say we'll say Matlock. And so there there are there there is a tradition in the House of Representatives of uh, of Republican senators, all, or I'm sorry, Republican representatives, all wearing seersucker on on uh, the first Thursday of every summer month or whatever. Uh, but when McConnell wore this tan suit to uh, to meet with Donald Trump, there was all this. Remember when Obama wore a tan suit? Uh, pushback, you know, like in his face about it. So uh, the the tan suit controversy, um, which was you know originally about nothing. Uh, except for the fact that tens of thousands of people had um, had a megaphone to just communicate their instantaneous impression of a guy walking out to a to a podium has now become uh, part of the conventional wisdom about how the political discourse. It might be one of the five things our our far future listeners remember about. The Obama, if they remember uh, Obama years, if they remember them at all, you know? oh, and the the media critique of the Obama years, and yes. what the media and the responses is. to the media critique. That's right, and how the and the differences between 2014 and 2017. I mean, they are already doing. They were already doing retrospective articles <laughs> in magazines about the tan suit controversy on the three year anniversary of it. In 2017, there there was the first of what followed what, many 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 articles to follow about like remember when uh, that laid out the whole controversy and then talked about all the different ramifications that, you know now now far overshadowing the event. I wonder what it did for the sale of tan suits. Does it help the visibility of the tan suit? Does it, does it scare people off the tan suit? Because I'm going to tell you something, which is that I own a tan suit. And irrespective of tan suit discourse, I always feel like it's a little edgy mm-hmm. to wear my tan suit. Like maybe I'm not that guy. Why? Why would I try to push the envelope and put on this tan suit when I have this blue one and this gray one right next to it? Let me throw this out: madras tie, tan suit, madras tie, tan suit, madras tie. The madras tie is the thing that's going to make the tan suit. Look like the 50s. I'm writing this down right now. And that concludes the tan suit controversy. Entry 12772.ez3403, certificate number 35844, in the omnibus. Uh, future links, if this is the first entry you're listening to and we did not scare you off of the potential of weird social media discourse. Uh, in our day, you should know that you could find at Omnibus Project pretty much everywhere uh, in the portal. I was at Ken Jennings on uh, Twitter. John, uh, you can find uh, at patreon.com slash John Roderick. You can uh, even Facebook, the worst of all the social media options, was a clearinghouse of Omnibus discourse. Every possible take made on every possible entry all the time by finding the Futurelings discussion group. There were similar fora on Discord and Reddit. Uh, Please, if you have the ability to send electronic mail to our era, please communicate with us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Send us artifacts. Send me a Madras tie to go with my Mm -hmm, tan suit mm -hmm. to omnibusproject at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 
98155. I recently found out that I read the wrong zip code the other day. What? Oh no. I just said some I just said some like other Seattle disc, uh, ad, uh, zip code from some other Seattle address that I was <laughs> that I was just uh, tripping along with. So I hope that the postal service can um, can adapt. Good work. You can uh, I mean really the way to support the show is not with your dad's madras tie. It's really to visit our Patreon, patreon.com slash omnibus project. If you uh, enjoy this content and the endless takes we provide on this content and the takes we provide on our takes on this content, you're going to want to be a Patreon member because that's where you can hear the monthly addenda show in which we get to hear listener commentary on our discourse and shut it down because we don't want that. Uh, it's really what keeps the show going and we are deeply grateful for the support we receive on Patreon, the sense of community there. Uh, wait, is that the whole thing? That might be it. Did you do it all? I think I might have done the whole thing. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, back when people still wore clothes instead of kelp Kelp pods, kelp uh, what? Kelp bu- bushels. Yeah, you'll wear those. You'll wear the kind of seaweed with the floaty poppy things, because then you can um, you can pop your clothes like uh, like postal packing bubbles. Yeah, you look like Sigmund the sea monster. Inst- yeah, instead of popping your collar, you can you can pop your uh, pop your pods. Uh, we have no idea how long our our uh, decaying system survived, but we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. Although, I don't know, less and less I pray that it will never come. I just pray that it will... Be painless? Quick and, uh, quick just, and easy? No, I think I'm just going to... I'm starting to put the some sheep's blood on the door every night, just just in case. You just want it, you want terrible things to happen, but you want it to pass your I want it to pass over. I'm not sure if, that, if it works that way anymore. Uh, if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Alma.